Let's pray. Living God, help us to hear your holy word, that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory and will in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the written word of God for the people of God. We say thanks be to God. I want to talk to you this morning about the purpose-driven Jesus. Jesus was and is many things. The Jewish Messiah, the King, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Healer, the Teacher, the Prophet, Perfect Priest, Lamb of God, Author of Life, Lord, and so much more. Under all of these titles and names is someone who was purpose-driven, That's what we're hearing about in the story of Jesus's life that we've just heard. Jesus was purpose-driven from the very beginning. In Luke's account of Jesus, this is the first event in Jesus's ministry that we get a lot of detail. He tells us in verse 15 that Jesus had already visited some synagogues in Galilee and taught there, but this is the first story that Luke goes into detail. Up to this point, Luke has told us in detail about Jesus's birth A story from his childhood, his baptism, as we read last week, and then his temptation just before our story this morning. Everything up to this point in Luke has been launching Jesus into his ministry. And here we have the first thing that takes place in his ministry. He preaches a short sermon in his hometown synagogue. For Luke, the sermon in Nazareth is crucial. Luke tells us about this sermon in Nazareth before anything else in Jesus' ministry. He tells us this because he understands this sermon, not just as a neat historical event in Jesus' life, but because this sermon would define the rest of Jesus' ministry. Think about the significance of that. This isn't just a cool story that happens in his ministry. It's a defining moment. It's like the first speech of a politician announcing that they are running for office. In this first speech, it's important not only to say, I'm running for mayor or Congress or president or whatever it may be, but to say why you're running. What's your platform? What issues will you focus on? That speech should define what your purpose for running for office is. And that is what this sermon is for Jesus. Of course, he's not running for political office. Still, this sermon serves as a purpose statement for him. What I find interesting is that we don't often think about this sermon in Nazareth as a defining moment in Jesus's life. It's not something that comes to mind. This text of Jesus reading a powerful text from Isaiah and saying that he is the fulfillment of this prophetic text is kind of neglected. I'll give an example. There's a very popular Christian book that was particularly popular when I was younger, so I never read it, but I've heard of it. 
Many of you may have heard of this book, and some of you maybe even read it. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. I've never read this book personally. Uh, I am familiar with Rick Warren and his church and what they've done. I'm sure there's a lot of really good things in the book, so I don't want to come across as disregarding the book totally. I just want to point something out. Someone pointed out that the purpose-driven life, the book, is full of scripture passages and verses. Rick Warren uses tons of text to explain what the purpose of the Christian life is about. Dozens of verses are referenced in each chapter. But this passage from Luke, where Jesus speaks in plain words what his purpose is, is not even referenced by Warren, not a single time. It's interesting to me that in a book about living a purpose-driven life following Christ, which uses countless passages of Scripture, the passage where Jesus couldn't be more clear about what his purpose was is not mentioned once. Is our purpose different or separate from Jesus's? Perhaps that's why Rick Warren doesn't include this passage. Perhaps we've been taught to see Jesus's purpose as different from the Christian's purpose. Perhaps we've been taught to hear this sermon from Jesus as simply spiritual. Jesus doesn't mean these things literally or physically. He's talking in spiritual terms. When Jesus says good news to the poor, he means poor in spirit. When he says release to the captives, he means those who are captives spiritually. When Jesus says sight to the blind, he means spiritually blind. When he says oppressed, he just means oppressed by sin. And when he references the year of Jubilee, he's really just talking about a spiritual revival for souls. I want to consider that this morning. I think Jesus does mean all of this spiritually. I think when he reads this text, he does understand poverty, imprisonment, blindness, and oppression as spiritually poor conditions. Yes, Jesus understands this all in terms of our spiritual condition. But that doesn't mean it isn't literal or physical. You see, while Jesus understands all of this as poor spiritual conditions, he understands these these situations, poverty and, and suffering in different ways, coming from poor physical and literal conditions. For Jesus, the spiritual is not disconnected and separate from the physical. There's not two different worlds, the world of the spiritual realities and the world of the physical realities. Jesus doesn't subscribe to that way of thinking. The physical world is deeply tied to the spiritual, and an attempt to disconnect them is actually just a symptom of sin. Physical blindness in a world that doesn't care for the blind negatively affects all of our spirit. Being oppressed when God intended us to be free is spiritually devastating. Being in prison in a world that cares more about retribution than reconciliation comes out of a misguided and demonic spirit. Indebtedness in a world that sides with the creditor instead of the one in debt causes spiritual death. God did not intend his physical creation to be stuck in these conditions. That is why Jesus comes. That is why God called a nation from Abraham to exist differently in the world. That is why Jesus comes to and continues the covenant by embodying it himself. Think about the Old Testament people. Their law system is set up around Sabbath keeping, keeping Sabbath, which is not only good for our spirits, it's good for us physically. The Sabbath is about forgiveness. It's about giving ourselves time off, even if that's not good financially. The, The seventh Sabbath year was about giving the land rest even if that's not good for us financially. 
the, the Jubilee, which comes seven times 70 after 49 years, the 50th year, the year of Jubilee was about forgiving debt and allowing things to go back to order. The way things that, that the way things got it intended, people sharing, people forgiving. That is what Abraham's people, the Israelites, are set up on. That is their law system. It runs through their law system. I really hope I haven't lost any of you this morning because this is important. In case I have lost you, though, I want to show you a little bit more by looking just a bit into the story of Jesus according to Luke. Let's, let's see how Jesus deeply understood the spiritual and physical world as deeply tied together. Spiritual salvation is not different from physical healing. Now, I'm borrowing this point from a preacher named Fred Craddock, and I'm using some of his, his material from a sermon that he preached called Jesus Saves. Powerful sermon. There's a familiar story that Luke tells of a woman who was suffering from hemorrhages. She had been bleeding constantly, and by Jewish law, this made her unclean, untouchable, an outsider. Not only suffering from a physical ailment, but also pushed out and marginalized because of something she could not help. You know this story. She gets up the courage in a crowd to sneak through and, and simply touch the hem of his garment. We're told that Jesus feels the healing power go out of him, and so he wants to know who touched him. The woman comes forward and Jesus and, and tells Jesus her story. Jesus replies, daughter, your fate has made you well. That's what the translators tell us anyway. Your faith has made you well. That's how it's translated. Another time, Luke tells us Jesus is going into Jerusalem when a whole group of lepers come to Jesus. More people whose physical condition calls them to be marginalized, pushed to the edges. Jesus heals all of them. And the one who was the foreigner, the most outside, the foreigner in the group comes back and worships Jesus. He falls down and worships Jesus. Jesus tells him, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The translators tell us again, your faith has made you well. At one point, Luke tells us that Jesus was invited into a Pharisee's home. A Pharisee named Simon. He was invited there to share a meal. And Jesus goes and, he, and his disciples are there and, and they're eating with this rich Pharisee named Simon. And while they're sharing a meal there, a woman comes in Luke describes this woman as a sinner. She comes to Jesus and anoints his feet and washes them with her tears. Jesus, in the midst of pressure to reject her, declares to her, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Later, Jesus is in Jericho. He meets a man named Zacchaeus, a tax collector who was caught up in greed, taking advantage of people. Jesus visits him and he speaks to him. And by the end, Zacchaeus has been transformed. His life has been changed. He declares that half of his possessions will be given to the poor and anyone he has defrauded will pay back, will be paid back 400%. Our English translations tell us that when Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. When this happens, when Zacchaeus declares this changed heart, he says, Jesus responds to him, salvation has come to this house. Salvation, Jesus saves. Fred Craddock points out in his sermon that it's interesting that the translators say saved or salvation when it involves sin. But when it involves crippled limbs and blind eyes, what does our translation say? Getting well. <laughs> you, you've been made well. 
In all cases, in every single one of these cases from Jesus's life in Luke, Jesus is saying the same thing. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. The word is the same each time, saved you. Even in the physical conditions, the crippled limbs, the blind eyes, Jesus says, saved. You are saved. Jesus doesn't distinguish between physical and spiritual because he understands that they are deeply tied together. They are not separate. Spiritual salvation is deeply tied to physical well-being. And Jesus makes it clear that our salvation is deeply tied to how we treat those who suffer from physical poverty, blindness, imprisonment, oppression, and indebtedness. In Luke's gospel, um, he tells us uh, this parable. Jesus tells this parable of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you know this story? It's not not a very well-known parable. Lazarus, who's suffering from physical poverty, would go to the rich man's gate and he would hope that some crumbs from the rich man's table would come to him. Instead, the rich man ignores him. The poor man goes hungry. When both men die, Lazarus, the poor man, is carried away by angels to Abraham. And the rich man who ignored the needs of Lazarus was in the place of the dead. Hades, we're told. The rich man in Hades calls out to Abraham, still dehumanizing Lazarus. Even in Hades, he still dehumanizes Lazarus as someone who's below him. And he says, Abraham, please send Lazarus with some water for me. We're told that Jesus explains, Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, received evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. For Jesus... Salvation is not just a spiritual matter for our spirits are deeply tied to our physical existence. When we are dehumanized and pushed to the margins, our spirits suffer. And we, when we are the ones doing the dehumanizing and ignoring of those in the margins, our spirit suffers, as in the case of the rich man. Jesus saves does not just mean that our soul is saved. It means that our lives are transformed. We no longer live physically or spiritually enslaved. Now, is this to say that someone who dies in poverty never experienced spiritual salvation? Of course not. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man would seem to say otherwise. Lazarus, the poor man, dies in poverty, and he is the one carried off into Abraham's bosom. The experience of salvation is tied to how we treat the poor. The experience of salvation is tied to how we treat the disabled, the prisoner, the oppressed. For Jesus, salvation isn't, a spirit, isn't just a spiritual matter. For our spirits are deeply tied to our physical existence. Jesus saves means that a new way of living that proclaims good news to the poor, that cares for the blind, that works for release and rest- restoration of the captives and liberty for the oppressed, and proclaims the year of Jubilee where debts are forgiven and families have their land restored. That's what Jesus saves mean, means. Today, Jesus says, today. This is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this work of ministry begins. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, so I'm convinced, maybe you're convinced, that Jesus' sermon in Nazareth wasn't just intended to be taken spiritually. Jesus favors the physically poor. He proclaims release to physically captive and oppressed. He gives healing to physical ailments. He encourages forgiveness of those who owe actual money. But what does that have to do with the church? 
Perhaps books like The Purpose Driven Life would leave this story of Jesus out because we've been taught to understand the Christian's purpose as different from Jesus's purpose. This would, of course, require us to miss the many times that Jesus says the words, follow me. And I don't want to be guilty of ignoring those words. In the passage we've read this morning, we're told twice that the Spirit is upon Jesus. In verse 14, Luke tells us that Jesus goes from his time of temptation in the wilderness, filled with the power of the Spirit. Then Jesus reads from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We read last week about that Spirit coming upon Jesus after his baptism. Even Jesus wasn't self-sufficient. Even Jesus cannot do this apart from his deep relationship to the Father and the Spirit. And so Luke, after telling the whole story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, tells of the beginnings of the church that is established by Jesus. Luke continues his story of Jesus by telling the story of the Acts of the Apostles. You know the book of Acts. It's written by Luke as well. The first stories of those who continued Christ's work by establishing the church. Right in chapter 1, of Acts. After Jesus has been raised from the dead, he tells his followers, you will receive power when this Holy Spirit comes upon you. The same Spirit which has come upon Jesus is given to the disciples. And this isn't just Luke's version of the story. If we jump over to John's gospel, we hear the same thing told slightly different. John tells us that after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he goes to the disciples and breathes on them and says these words, receive the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father has sent me, in the same way that the Father has sent me, now I send you. In the book of Acts, we hear about the early church's spread in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the Roman Empire. All the time we hear of of the church doing exactly what Jesus did. Not something different, not a different purpose, but exactly what Jesus did. They approach those that the world has marginalized. They offer healing and liberty. Jesus saves Not just when he was physically on earth. Jesus continues to save through the church. That is what Acts is all about. The same spirit, the same mission, the same purpose is given to the church which began in Jesus. Our New Testament is clear. Jesus doesn't send the church out into the world to do something different than what he did. The mission of God is Jesus' mission. The mission of the church is Jesus' mission. It is the same spirit which was upon Jesus and the early church that we, 2,000 years later, are still calling upon to fall fresh. It is the spirit of the crucified and resurrected Christ that we seek to infill us and empower us, not to do something different, but to continue Jesus' work of caring, not just for the spiritual salvation of all, but for the physical rescue and salvation of all. And because it is the same spirit as the spirit of Christ and the early church, it requires the same thing from us that, re- that was required of Jesus in the early church. Full commitment and surrender. Faithfulness even unto death. This is not a hobby. This isn't a pastime or activity among a list of pastimes and activities. This is, this is life. And it requires our entire life. We are committed. Are, are we committed at the level that Jesus was? Are we committed at the level that the early church was? May we never stop working towards that level of commitment. May we never stop asking ourselves if there is something more we have to give over to Christ. Sanctification that we talk about in the Church of the Nazarene, this isn't an excuse for us to stop asking ourselves what Christ is calling us to. Sanctification is the sign of a life that asks God each and every day, 
What is it that we are withholding from God? What is it that we have to surrender from God to God? Jesus saves. In the New Testament, we hear about the body of Christ. We, the New Testament refers to three different physical things in our world called the body of Christ. Of course, we know that Christ had a physical body. Christ lived physically in our world in an actual body. He moved around in flesh and blood. He, made vulnerable to sick, he was made vulnerable to sickness and death and sin in his actual body. The body of the historical Christ was here on our earth. Then, as we hear from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we just read it a little while ago, we hear the body of Christ, which is the church. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. We are not each the body of Christ on our own. We are, not, we are only members of that body together. This requires a commitment to life, a commitment of our entire life to this body of believers who are faithfully committed to being infilled and empowered by the Spirit of Christ. For without that Spirit, each of us may be alive physically, but our body truly is dead. Without the Spirit empowering us that calls us to continue the purpose of Christ in the world, we are lifeless. For the Spirit is life, and apart from it there is no life. And finally, we are told of one more physical thing that refers to the body of Christ in the New Testament. Jesus tells us himself as found in Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is filled, fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. The body of Jesus came, lived, ministered, and taught us how to live and minister. He sends that same spirit that empowered himself to live a committed and faithful life to us in order that we together as his body, his new embodiment in the world, may live out that same faithfulness in the world. The way in which we do this and are sustained in the faithfulness of Jesus is by taking on practices that form us. Practices that require commitment and faithfulness themselves. Practices that form us and make us together into Christ's body. The church, since Paul, has celebrated the communion supper. It is a means of grace by which we are mysteriously made into the body of Christ by taking in the body and blood of Christ as this bread and wine represent. We're told the communion supper instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus and continued through the ages by the church proclaims his life, his ministry to the marginalized and outsiders, his sacrificial death that came as a result of his faithfulness and his resurrection and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. The supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit and by which we are mysteriously made into the body of Christ in the world. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins, believing in Christ for salvation, are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ by coming to this table. We come to this table that we might be formed together into Christ. 
You don't have to be a member here at this church or even a member of the Church of the Nazarene. All are welcome. If you need to have this sacrament brought to you, if you are listening and and not present with us in bodily form here at our church, please reach out to us, to me or Pastor Mary Elizabeth, or if you know someone else close in our church that you can talk to, ask them and they will pass it on to us. We will bring you this sacrament that you may receive it. This sacrament is for all. In unity with the church, we confess our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again.